I just thank you that you are, number one, a prayer-answering God. That you, Lord, weigh the emotions, the motives of the heart. You know our innermost thoughts. You know our innermost being. There's no place that we can flee from your presence, that you are not there. You are there. And Lord, tonight I pray that you will open up our heart, that you will search us, that you will challenge us. Lord, you will comfort, you will strengthen us. Lord, where there's places in our life you want to convict us, I pray that you'll do that. Lord, that we will stand before you, and I pray that your work of grace in our heart will bring about transformation in our lives. So when tests come our way, when trial come our way, Lord, we will not falter nor stumble, but we will stand strong in that hour. Lord, that our behavior will reflect your spirit at work within our lives, and we will bring honor and glory to you. And now I pray, Lord, that you will deliver us from the strongholds of the enemy. Lord, that we will experience the freedom that you have provided for us on account of your death and resurrection. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to Mark's gospel. We've been zeroing in on that gospel now for a little while. I'm having a lot of fun. This, this, this little gospel is extremely powerful in the way Mark relates the story to us. Now, you know, I was thinking about uh, the story that we're going to look into. This is, this is a very interesting moment in the life of Jesus. Jesus has now prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of you were here last week. We talked about that. And then Judas comes on the scene, one of his own disciples, and betrays Jesus. And, you know, the thing that really struck me as I was meditating on this was the fact that Judas had been with Jesus for over three years. He had watched the miracles. He had heard the teaching. He had seen Jesus pray. I mean, you know, the other disciples had seen the same thing. Now, I know that they didn't all fully grasp everything that Jesus was doing, but can you imagine just being in the boat and all of a sudden a storm is, you know, going on and, you know, Judas was in that boat. And Jesus now starts walking on the water. How many go, wow, that's a little amazing. Wouldn't you guys be amazed by that? Wouldn't it be amazing when Jesus gets in the boat and immediately the storm ceases and immediately you're on shore? How many go, that's not normal stuff? That's not what you're used to, right? You know, they saw people that were demonized, set free. They saw these great miracles of healing. And yet Judas did not really get Jesus. He didn't understand them. He didn't understand. And, you know, I was thinking about that. You know, sometimes we, we read that and we think about that and we go, where is this guy? And yet, how many young people grow up in the church and they have exposure to the church and they have a godly home? I mean, I, I know that not all Christians are godly. Not all Christian homes are godly homes. I know that sometimes some Christians lead towards legalism where, you know, the parent is constantly in the face of the young person telling them what to do, but they themselves aren't doing it. And so there's a, a disconnect, okay? I understand that there's sometimes that there are people that are saying they're Christians, but they're, they're actually neglecting their children, and there's not a, a real direction and guidance in their life. I understand that. But what I'm talking about is a godly home, someone where the parents, you know, I'm not saying they're perfect parents, but they're loving, caring, they're concerned, they're praying, they're modeling the Christian life. And yet the young person grows up in this home and does not connect with Jesus. That happens, by the way. You know, let's not be, let's not kid ourselves. This, this happens more than we'd like to admit. And sometimes the parents just feel distraught, they're frustrated, they're upset. They're going, God, I've been praying, how come nothing's happening? 
And why isn't my kid getting this? Why aren't they getting Jesus? Why don't they understand this thing? And, uh, but you know what I noticed? That sin has a way of blinding people. Sin has a way of distorting things. And, and you know, it's amazing. And I've, I've had people say this to me. You know, we have two young people growing up in the same home and two young people see their home life totally polar opposite of what was really happening. How many know what I'm talking about? And it's stunning to us. I mean, how could you guys be living in the same house and get a whole different story of what's going on in the house? But that happens. And so obviously Judas had that same experience. And so we come to this amazing story of Jesus, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and ultimately the denial of Jesus. So we're really, uh, denial of Peter. So we're gonna cover a lot of text of scripture tonight, but I believe that what I'm trying to do is show you something in this movement that there are a number of things that are happening where Jesus was being tested as well as the disciples were being tested. And we have this contrast between how Jesus responds to the disappointments and to the painful circumstances of his life and how Peter responds to these same things and how Jesus actually rises above what's happening in his life. What I'm trying to say is the circumstances of his situation are not defining him as a person. Meanwhile, Peter is succumbing to his own weaknesses and the circumstances are beginning to define who he is. That Peter now is gonna deny Jesus. James Edwards, who's a New Testament scholar, says Peter's example is a warning to disciples. Then and now, that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. It is in everyday matters that disciples are true martyrs. Now, you have to understand, when we think of the word martyr, we're thinking of somebody physically dying, right? They're being martyred for their faith. But that word is actually the Greek word that actually means to bear witness. And in the New Testament, many believers bore witness with the loss of their lives. But you and I right now, we're martyrs. I don't know if you know that. You're all martyrs. If you're a child of God, you're bearing witness. And the question is, what kind of a witness are you bearing? And we see this uh, to, you know, just in the ordinary affairs of life. Now, Mark may have concluded this section with Peter's story to remind his persecuted congregation. We have to understand something. Mark wrote this letter probably 30 years after this incident happened. Okay? He's now writing because he's probably one of the leaders in the church at Rome at this time, and he's writing to this congregation, he's writing to a Roman audience, and as we're gonna see, he actually uh, purposely excludes certain things in the story. He excludes the fact that Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus. He excludes that. Now, how do we know that there were Roman soldiers, a little delegation of Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus? Because John tells us in his gospel. But remember, John's gospel is written a lot later than Mark's gospel. Mark's is written a lot earlier. And so Mark is trying to communicate. And just like, you know, we're looking at the story. This is not like written when it just happened. This isn't like the newspaper account that comes out the next day and tells you what happened. This is like 30 years later, and when Mark is writing the story, he's not, he has a very distinct purpose in mind. And that's what we need to understand, that why we have three Gospels as each Gospel writer, or four Gospels, is the fact that you know, there's a very distinct purpose in the mind of each writer and what they're trying to convey and the message they're trying to convey. This is not what I consider just pure history or just pure narrative. It's, it's theological history. 
There's a purpose in what's being communicated in each one of these gospels, and so Mark has a purpose. And here we see a beautiful picture of this, this lead apostle, Peter, the leader of the church at Rome at one point, you know, and it's basically teaching us that even the best Christian or lead apostle is not immune to apostasy. In other words, you know, even great leaders can succumb to temptation and fail. Nor will it be seen is that he, Peter, is beyond the promise of God's grace. Isn't that great that, you know, when somebody messes up, God is not beyond forgiving them. I love that. And that the church is so secure and can be honest about its own sins. And we can actually say this is what's really going on here. We don't have to, you know, live in continuous shame. We don't have to live in hiding. We don't have to pretend that we've got it all together. You know, when that happens, we're not being authentic. And when we're not being real about where our life is really at, we're not going to get healthy. We're going to live in denial. We're going we're gonna to pretend that things are better than what they are. And how many, you know, some of you have grown up in the Christian church. How many times have people played this game of pretending that they're doing better than what they really are? Come on now. Have you seen that? And you know how unhealthy that is? Wouldn't it be a lot better to just live in a community where people are becoming authentic, admitting their shortcomings, admitting where they're struggling, where people, instead of judging each other, are praying for one another and recognizing that we are all fellow sinners that have experienced God's grace and we continue to need to experience God's grace until the day we go to heaven? Isn't that a lot better? How many think that's a lot better? I think that's a lot healthier. I think people can get better when you actually deal with things that way. And so here the church can be honest about sin, even the sins of an apostate apostle because it is so convinced of grace. I love that. And think about what the apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans where sin increased. What happens? Grace does increase more. In other words, when you and I really understand the message of God's grace, we understand that God can cover even the most atrocious and difficult and painful and terrible things that people do one to another. You know, the Bible says that love actually covers a multitude of sins, and God is an amazing lover. He can actually forgive us. There's only one sin that God cannot forgive. You know what that is? You know, we have a technical term, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but you know what I think that really is? It just means that we're resisting the Holy Spirit. That's all that, that's a, that's all that we're doing. We're resisting God's drawing grace into our lives. We're resisting God's forgiveness. We're resisting what God wants to do within our hearts. But if you and I will open our hearts to God, God can forgive us of anything we've done. And we're going to see that as we continue through this message. So, what's to befall Jesus and the disciples is now a time of great testing and trial. How do we handle life's most painful and difficult moments? That's the question I'm raising tonight. We're going to look at three tremendously difficult moments that come into our lives. And let me just say something to us. If we don't think that these difficulties will come into life, then we have a false understanding of life itself. I, I want to shatter something for you. Life is not easy. Can you get that out of your mind? You know, people get really upset because we, they, you know, we all feel like, hey, I'm a child of God. Life should go good now, right? And I want to just tell you right now, life is not designed to be easy. So just write this in your mind. Write it on a piece of paper. Etch it in your thinking. Life is a challenge. There are difficulties out there. Jesus said in this world you'll have trouble. It's, the, it's a reality. You know, when a bad thing happens to us, you know, we go, why is this happening to me? You know, I don't, I, I, it just amazes me how many Christians say that. Why is this happening to me? And I'm going, life. Life is difficult. There will be challenges. You will be tested. And how many know that the reason why you are tested, you know, if you're an educator, why do you test children or adults 
is to find out what they actually know. The way to understand what we actually know. See, a lot of us think we know more than we actually know. It's all in our head. But I'll tell you, you don't really know it until you live it. And you don't really know how much you know until you're in it. You're experiencing the trial. And then all of a sudden, things are popping out, and you're going, wow, didn't know that about myself. You know, sometimes you surprise yourself. Go, wow, I'm doing a lot better than I thought I would do. And then other times you're going, man, I'm really disappointed in myself. I'm really messing up. I'm not handling this very well. Anybody relate to this? Okay, so God is now allowing these things to reveal to us the true condition of our soul. God knows all about what's in us, but you and I don't. How can you and I grow and improve if we don't know where we're at? There has to be some sort of a standard to measure where we're at. And so tonight, we're gonna look at three experiences of life that really are designed to test us. And the first one is in times of betrayal. Talk about a painful experience. To betray a person's love is probably one of the greatest evils that we do to each other as human beings. Now, I can think of a number of circumstances and situations where we actually betray one another. You know, the most obvious one is we're married to someone and our spouse betrays our, our trust, breaks relationship, and is unfaithful, right? Infidelity, that's a very painful experience. And some of you may have experienced that, that pain. But you know what? There's other expressions of betrayal. What happens when a child is really being neglected by their parents? Isn't that kind of a betrayal? That this child is not getting the benefits you know, they're kind of starting out from life kind of behind the eight ball, if I can say it that way, or they're, they're starting further back in life. They don't have all the advantages that other people have. Come on now. Not everybody starts out at the same place in life. How many have discovered that? That's the way it works, and I think we need to understand that. And so there's a sense of betrayal. A lot of times, parents are self-absorbed. Many times, parents have so many troubles in their own lives or so many self-inflicted problems or have problems come upon them, they're just neglecting to help their children through these experiences. Or think about, you know, the experience where others are looking to us or depending on us to help them in this journey of life. Can I just say something? If you're a highly blessed person and you've had all the advantages of life, then you have a responsibility to help other people. As a matter of fact, that's the call of the Christian life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Christianity is not designed to be self-pleasing. It's not about us. It's not about what we get out of it. It's about forgetting about ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about neglecting ourselves. I think there's two extremes. Here's the one extreme, and you know, I see Christians do this. You know where they just get so absorbed in helping other people, they, they neglect themselves. How many know that's not healthy? That is not healthy, folks. If you're doing that, stop doing that. That is one extreme. Here's the other extreme. You know what? I'm just taking care of myself. It's about me. I don't have time for other people. Can I just say the most, the most unhappy campers on the planet are the most self-centered people? And they're always miserable because it's always about them. But somewhere in the middle of the road is this idea that you and I are here to help other people, that we're not just here for ourselves. Listen, I love what uh, he goes on to say, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. You know, Rachel and I, my youngest daughter, were having a conversation. We're talking about, you know, this whole issue of jealousy and envy. You know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people are jealous of other people. How many know that's true? And a lot of people envy other people, and a lot of people say nasty things and do nasty things because they're jealous or they're insecure or they dislike what's happening to another person. Listen, when we're a secure person, when we're a spiritual person, you know what we do when we find out other people are having awesome things happening in their life? 
We're their greatest cheerleader. We're going, yeah, right on. I'm excited for you, right? That's when you know that it's not just about you. You're genuinely happy for other people. But let's say that's not who you are. Then I would be on my knees saying, God, change me. I don't want to be an envious and jealous person. Because you know, a lot of times somebody's blessed and then the next thing you hear out of this person's mouth, what about me? What about me? You know? What about you? You know? Listen, God has designed a different path for each one of us. He knows how much blessing to give you and how much trial to give you. And he has designed it specifically for you. This isn't like going to school and everybody gets through the same test. No, God designs things a little differently for each one of our lives. It's an individual design, but you know, we eventually we cover the same course. It's amazing. He knows when to do what to each of our lives. There's nothing about the Christian life that's about putting ourselves first. How many figured that out? It's about putting God first. It's about putting others before ourselves. Now, here in the story, we come to this betrayal. It starts in verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. It's interesting he says it that way. You have to realize that when Jesus came back from the dead, he appeared to 500 brethren in Galilee. So there wasn't just a few followers of Jesus. You gotta get that out of here. There was a lot of people following Jesus. There was the 70 he sent out. But now we have this, this inner circle of, of very tight you know, followers, the 12. They were the leaders of the future of the church. And now one of them is betraying Jesus. It says, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kissed is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now it's very fascinating. The word kiss there, uh, according to Ken Hughes, is a, a pastoral scholar. He says this, the infamy is in this. The word for kiss here is not your normal word for kiss. This is a, a, a different word. It's actually a word that expresses affection. Isn't that interesting? So Judas now comes and affectionately kisses Jesus. And he, he honors Jesus with the term rabbi. Now, how many know one of the most bitter pills to take is when someone is really pretending to love you but is about ready to stab you in the back? How many know that's a really tough thing to handle? That's exactly what Judas is doing here. He's turning his back on Jesus. And um, isn't that... Isn't it interesting that the true nature of sin is always abusing God's good gifts for one's selfish ends? Isn't that kind of what sin is all about? I would argue and point out that the Satan, the enemy of our souls, has never been creator of anything. All he has done is distort God's good gifts. And that all these legitimate things that God has put into our lives, he's trying to abuse these gifts, and that's what makes them a sin, you know? How many know that's right? You know, money's not a bad thing. I'm gonna just say that right now. Money's not bad. But, you know, it can be bad if we use it improperly. Isn't that true? It's bad if we become greedy, right? It's bad if we're not generous with our resources. Then it becomes a problem. See, the enemy uses good things and distorts them. And, and, and we become distorted by the abuse of these good gifts from God. We could go on and talk about all the other elements of sin, but they're all a distortion of a good thing. What makes it so terrible is that betrayal is a violation of trust. You know, David felt that way. 
It says here in Psalm 55, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked among the worshipers. Think about it. David's life. Who betrayed David? His own son. Isn't that amazing? Remember how, you know, how powerful that was? How, how painful it was for David? And when Absalom was killed, how did David respond to that? You know, he was totally broken. He was crying. He was weeping. You know, he was the man that was trying to kill him. You know, David in some sense is modeling for us the way we need to handle life when someone close to us betrays us. And Jesus does the very same thing. Think about Jesus' amazing response to this act of treachery and, be, and betrayal. Mark kind of gives us Sorry, Matthew gives us a kind of a response. It doesn't, it's not found in Mark here, but in Matthew 26, it's the same incident. I'm just pulling a little different angle of the story. Matthew shares it this way. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Now, I don't, I don't think Jesus is being, you know, uh, sarcastic. I don't believe he's using that term friend in some sort of a, you know, nasty sort of a way. I, I think when Jesus, what Jesus is actually doing is saying, Judas, I still consider you my friend. In the very act of betrayal, Jesus is still reaching out to Judas. You know what amazes me? And I, I, I really believe this. If Judas, who had now betrayed Jesus and Jesus was carted off, if Judas had come to Jesus instead of the high priest and threw the money down, if Judas had repented and come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I am so sorry for betraying you. What do you think Jesus would have done? What do you think? He would have forgiven him. You go, how do you know that, Pastor? How can you make that assumption? Because when Jesus was being crucified by the very man who crucified him, what did he say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't fully grasp what's going on here. And do you think Judas fully grasped what was going on? Do you think the disciples fully grasped what was really going on here? Or are they just naturally reacting to this amazing situation that they find themselves in? You know what's interesting? Jesus taught us to love our enemies. Did he not? He said, bless them, do good to them, pray for them, right? Forgive them. Jesus doesn't just tell us to do it. Jesus models it for us. Jesus demonstrates it, not with just mere word, but also in action. Jesus was not overcome by evil. Judas was doing an evil to him, and the only way you can overcome evil is by doing good in turn. Because when you and I begin to do evil in return, what happens is we have now become over, we have been overcome by evil. And Jesus is now overcoming the evil by doing good in turn. Wow, that's amazing. Now, how many people today are living a life defined by the evil done to them? You think there's a lot of people? They've been victimized, they've been exploited, they've been abused, they've been violated, they've been betrayed, they've been hurt. And you know what? They're living there. A lot of people are not living in this moment. Even in this church, there are people living in the past. They have been totally shaped by an event in the past. It's defining who they are today. <clears throat> you know what? I believe Jesus wants to set us free tonight. He does not want us to be defined by yesterday. Jesus wants you to be free, and the only way to get out of the prison house 
is that you and I have to make a decision to forgive those who have sinned against us. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was teaching his prayer, it's a very profound prayer if you think about it. It says in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us our sins, our our trespasses, our debts, even as we forgive, even as we forgive those who trespassed against us. As a matter of fact, our condition to receiving forgiveness is determined by our ability to forgive. I would argue that until we experience God's forgiveness, it's really difficult for us to forgive. And maybe one of the challenges tonight is that you and I need to say, God, I need to experience your forgiveness. Maybe I need to see myself as a sinner. Therefore, I can forgive another person because I have sinned against you. We don't see ourselves as sinners, folks. You know, we'll say, well, I'm not perfect. You know, we make all these remarks, but the reality is we don't see ourselves as really sinning against God. We don't see ourselves as being responsible for putting the nails into his hands. I don't think we see our, our uh, sins of omission, you know, not just our sins of commission, but our sins of omission, the things we should be doing and we're not doing as part of the nails that are being piercing the body of our Savior. We don't see ourselves so often as actual sinners. And until you do, it's really hard for you to move forward. It's really hard for you to forgive other sinners because you think you're better than they are. And that's the truth. And that's why we don't forgive people. We see ourselves as better. We need to see ourselves as fellow sinners. We need to see ourselves as someone who Christ died for and we needed to have Christ die for us. That's the truth. And maybe we have to go through a deep experience to really experience that in our lives. I don't know. I want you to notice the unusual response. Look at Mark 14, 46. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. You know, isn't that kind of generally we deal with problems? We lash out. We strike back. And in Mark's gospel, we don't have who the culprit is. Matter of fact, you know, it's really funny. I'm reading these commentators, and some of them are kind of guessing, you know, who's this person that did it? Well, you know, the, you don't have to guess. The Bible tells you in another passage. John, in his, in his gospel, who's written later after Peter's death, points out to us that the culprit that lashed out was Peter. Look what it says here in John 18, 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword. Remember, Jesus said, does anybody have a sword? And they say, yeah, we got two of them. And you know, Peter being the leader of that group says, give me one. How do I know that? Because he had a sword. I mean, you guys may not need a sword, but I need one. I get the feeling that Peter was, you know, he was a macho guy, right? He was a leader. He, did, he was impulsive. You know, give me a sword. I'm going to handle whatever comes, whatever comes away. If somebody needs to defend Jesus, I'm going to do it. Can you get the picture of Peter? He has a sword. It says here, then Simon, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And John now, who knows a little bit about the, you know, the, the Sanhedrin and the different personnel, he said the servant's name was Malchus. John knew who it was who had his ear sliced. I really have this feeling that Peter went for his head and missed. You know? I don't think, you know, Peter's not this, you know, he, he's, he's going to defend Jesus. Here's this crowd coming, these soldiers coming at Jesus. As far as Peter's concerned, we're going to defend Jesus. You know, because in his mind, Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to defeat the Romans. And so he pulls out his sword and he's going for it. And what does Jesus say? This is so amazing. This is how you know that the disciples are not on the same page as Jesus. Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. I sh- shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, 
you guys have got this all messed up. You guys think that what I've come to do is overthrow this, this whole regime. I've not come to do that. You see, a lot of revolutions in our world, they start out with high ideals. We're gonna help the poor, we're gonna deliver the oppressed, we're gonna redistribute land. Come on, let's, let's, come on, isn't that the way it is? And what happens is a new force comes into power and they're just as corrupt as the last group. There's no amens here. Because you know, it's amazing that once we get into power, we tend to be shaped by the power we're welding. And so often what people start out to do a good thing, by the time they get to the top, they've been tainted all the way up and eventually they're so marred by the power that they, they become just like the group before them. Isn't that unfortunate? And I want to just say to you tonight that Christ's kingdom is an inverted kingdom. It's not like that. It's not about seizing power. It's about relinquishing control. And you know, for most of us in this room, we have a hard time with control issues, you know, letting go and trusting God. And isn't that what the kingdom of God is all about, is learning how to trust? Isn't that the whole message of the gospel? Of course it is. You know, Ken Hughes you know, points out something. Peter's rash action could have literally destroyed the church right there. Now I want you to think about it. You've got a Roman delegation coming to arrest Jesus with temple soldiers. These guys are trained warriors. They're coming and they see, you know, Judas, I think he just slips off and you got Jesus and the other 11 disciples. You got 12 men. You got a, a squadron of soldiers coming and Peter pulls out his sword. Listen, this is, you, you, you have to get a feeling for the time. You know, the Jewish people were constantly agitating. This was not a, a, a real peaceful situation. They were always on the verge of exploding into revolt. And so this was a highly sensitive, this was a highly explosive moment. At any moment, there could have been a conflict right here. And you know what? Some of the men that Jesus had been training for three and a half years could have been killed that night. How many see that now? Peter was impulsive. He thought he was doing the right thing. How many times in our lives do we impulsively do what we think is the right thing and in reality we could have actually done so much damage and Jesus has to stop us? Peter, put away that sword. That's not what I'm about. I have a totally different agenda. You know the fact that Jesus did that, picked up the guy's ear, put it back on his head and healed him and actually, actually changed the course of that night. Jesus actually saved his disciples from annihilation. And we don't see that in the story because we're so locked in on, yeah, I know the story. You know, Jesus is being betrayed. Jesus is being arrested. We kind of just kind of go through the motions. But I want you to think about when it's actually happening, nobody knows what's going to happen here. You know, we're reading ahead. We know the book of Acts. We know the 11 are there. But at that moment, nobody knows. And how many know that when you're in the moment, you don't know what's gonna, how it's going to turn out? These guys didn't know how it was going to turn out. Jesus stepped up and dealt with that situation. I don't know, I thought that was pretty insightful. You know, Mark doesn't mention the Roman soldiers because Mark is writing to a Roman audience. He doesn't want to implicate the Roman soldiers in the story, but look what John says here. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. This was a highly volatile situation. Jesus now challenges the legality of the arrest. He says, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. You know what Jesus is basically saying? You guys are treating me like a criminal. I've been in front of you the whole time. I've been teaching. Why didn't you arrest me in the daytime? But they were afraid to do that. They were afraid of what the people might do. So they came in a secretive move. 
Actually, Jesus says, but I know what's really going on here. You guys are treating me like a common criminal. Actually, this is now fulfilling a very profound text of scripture found in the book of Isaiah chapter 53 where you have the story of the suffering servant. And it says, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was treated like a common criminal. That's, that's pretty powerful. You know, a lot of times people do the wrong thing and they're caught. They become a criminal. Jesus can identify with criminals. He was treated like one. And then we read, everyone abandoned him. Verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now only Mark tells us this story. And there's all kinds of, you know, supposition. Who is this person, you know, that, you know, is wearing this, you know, cloth that was grabbed by a soldier and ran off naked, you know? They're all trying to figure it out. Who's this person? You know, a lot of them think it was actually the author of the book, John Mark. And it's interesting, you know, linen is actually an expensive fabric. A lot of people didn't have the resources to buy that kind of clothing. So it spoke of somebody who had some measure of wealth. And we know from the New Testament that John Mark was actually from a wealthy family, that his mother actually, probably his father had died, but the church actually met in their house. And when, you have, when you're starting to meet in somebody's house, it has to be a large house. So this was not a poor person. But it doesn't matter who it is. That's not the point. Actually, Mark, who's writing the story, is leaving us with all kinds of echoes and illusions. Like, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, I want you to think about another garden story where people are naked. Is there any, any story like that comes to mind? Which immediately comes to mind? If I tell you, garden story, somebody's naked. Adam and Eve, thank you very much. Boom, you get an A. You pass the test. No. Adam and Eve, right? They're in a garden. What are they doing? They're actually naked. They don't even realize it. You know, and all of a sudden they sin and they start to see their true condition. They're naked. And they feel shame. This is actually a shame culture. To be naked in that culture was considered shame. Now, you have to understand something. The Greeks did not feel this way. Do you know that when they had gymnastics, you know, gym, gym, the gymnasium is actually a Greek origination. How many know that? And actually, in the original Olympic Games, they performed naked. Does anybody know that? Oh, a few of you, two or three or four. Okay, most of you didn't know that. That's reality. And so there was no shame in nakedness, but the Jewish culture was different. They saw nakedness as being an expression of shame. There was a measure of shame. We need to be clothed, okay? And what is Mark trying to tell us? He's basically saying the fact that they all left Jesus is a mark of deep shame. They felt shame. You know one of the reasons why people have a hard time getting their lives right with God? Shame stands in the way. When you do something terrible, how many, you know, in your life you can look back, you know, if we do sins enough time, eventually we don't feel anything. We sear our conscience. But initially when we do the wrong thing, what's the, when is one of the first human emotions or reactions to sin? Shame. We feel ashamed. Shame, shame. You know, how could I do this? I feel so ashamed of myself. And here these dis dis disciples felt this deep sense. They had a basis at this moment. Timothy Keller says, I remember that when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they, they, they turned, 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 turned around, 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 and sent them from ever going, ever going back, going back. Remember that? God did angels to keep them from going back to the tree of life, life because now they were in a different state. And God did not want, want us to live eternally in a state of death, but God wants us to live eternally in a state of life. And so, isn't this powerful that when their, their sins now were separating them from God and there's no way back into God's presence unless, unless, unless someone goes under the sword of divine justice. 
And who do you think think is now, is now about, to, about to go under the, the, the sword of, of divine, 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 divine justice? Jesus does. On the cross, Jesus is getting what we deserve so we can get what he, what he deserves. But let me move on to the, the second moment. moment, moment. And, and, and that's a time of injustice. How many of you have ever experienced injustice in your life? Where you, where you, where you were treated, 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 treated. You know, light has a way of, of revealing darkness. And we see that in this text. Really powerful. Jesus is now experiences what I call a travesty of justice. He's, this is a kangaroo court. This is, this is a farce. You know, they're violating every rule of law in this court case. First of all, he's arrested at night and he's immediately tried at night, not even in the next day. It says in verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus. Listen, they arrested him without any evidence. How many think that's kind of poor law enforcement? I mean, wouldn't we have a little conniption fit here? You know, we're in our society and people are getting arrested and there's no evidence to arrest them. But that's what they did to Jesus. So that they, and then it says, so that they can put him to death. They had already sentenced him in their minds. They wanted him out of the way. But they couldn't find any evidence, it says. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. How many know when you're in a court of law and the, and the people who are testifying against you, their, their, wit, their, their testimony does not agree with it? with each other. What would happen to that, that accused person? They'd be set free, right? But look what happens. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Even then their testimony did not agree. They're having all kinds of problems in this court case. It says, we know from earlier in the chapter that they had already in their minds made it up their mind about Jesus' guilt. Look what it says earlier in the chapter, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Nice guys, huh? This is your parliament working for you in Israel. This is your court of law looking how to destroy you. And then it says, but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. In other words, that's why they did it at night. That's why they were scheming. And that's the only reason why they did it during the Passover feast, because they found someone who was willing to betray him, one of his own. Once again, we're reminded of the Old Testament. As Jesus is being accused, how does Jesus handle false accusation? It doesn't say anything. How many here, when you've been falsely accused of something, what's the first thing you want to do? Defend yourself. You want to share your side of the story. Jesus doesn't do that. Look what Isaiah 53, 7 says. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, Jesus was so smart, he knew that no matter what he said, they'd use it against him. He didn't say anything. It was like a kangaroo court. Everything they said wasn't working. They were getting frustrated. Can you imagine the frustration? We want to kill this guy, but we can't pin anything on him. And then we see this powerful confession, and it comes from a very unusual source. Look at verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. 
Again, the high priest asked him. You can see the exasperation building up. You know, like, what are we going to do? And then he said to him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now, we have to understand something. When we read these words, we don't have the understanding of the theological implications of that statement. Number one, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that God is sending to deliver us from the oppression that we're living in? Are you the blessed one? Are you the one that God is sending? Are you the one that, you know, you are a special person from God? That's what they're saying here. What does Jesus do? He answers for the first time. What does he say? Verse 62, I am. Now, for many people, that answer is just kind of a weird answer, you know, I am. And we think, well, he's just agreeing to what the, the, the high priest is confessing. But what Jesus is saying is so profound, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament. We have to remember the story of Moses, who is now at the burning bush, and God's talking to him. He says, Moses, I want you to go down there and deliver my people. Moses says, no way. I don't want to go down there, because they're going to ask me a question. Who are you? Who's sending you? What authority are you coming in? What's the name of the God that's sending you? And, And so God says to Moses, I'll tell you who I am. I am. That's the name of Yahweh. That's the name of God. And so Jesus says, I'm God. Now, how many think this is going to really get people going? I mean, he's using the name of God here, and then he does, on top of that, he, he really finishes it off with one bull stroke. You know, just in a few, in one sentence, basically, Jesus seals his fate, but he also makes a powerful declaration. And then he says this, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus tells him who he is. He's the Son of Man. Now, for us, we're just going, so what? Well, you have to know your Old Testament. These guys were steeped in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds to judge the world. And so what Jesus is basically saying, I'm your judge. And what are they doing? They're judging the judge. These clouds are the Shekinah glory, the very presence of God, and by his choice of text, Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see an amazing paradox. And what is that? that this is an enormous reversal. He, the judge over the entire world, is being judged by the world. How many think that's a little weird? And by the way, is the world still judging Jesus? Absolutely. He is judging Jesus. The world is judging his church, his body. The world is rejecting his claims, just like the Sanhedrin rejected his claims here. And yet, Jesus is our creator. You can read that in Scripture. You know, one of the reasons why we don't want to, you know, we want to believe in evolution rather than creation is because we don't want to be accountable to the creator. He is the creator. He is your creator and my creator. Not only that, he is our redeemer. He's the one that delivers us from our sins. But not only that, he is our king. We sang about that tonight. But he's also our judge. And he will judge us because we are accountable to him. We are created by him and we are created for him. And we are designed to bring honor and glory to him. Wow. And then we get this very destructive reaction, verse 63. High priest tears his clothes. That's a sign of great distress and agony. Why do we need any more witness, he says. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then they began to spit at him, blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. You know, there was a, an old Jewish concept that the Messiah, when he would come, would have such a, an ability that if you cloaked him, he could still tell your identity simply by your smell. I'm going, really? This is weird to me. You know, 
But it's funny how people come up with weird ideas. But look at the way they behave towards Jesus. You could feel the wrath and anger and hostility level to him. But let me move on to the final test that comes our way. Not only times of betrayal, times of injustice, what about times of rejection? You know, it's one thing for your adversaries to treat you poorly. How many know it's it's a lot more painful when your friends treat you poorly? Or when they're not there for you, when they forsake you, when they abandon you, when they reject you. Everybody had forsaken him. And now Peter, who has run away, comes to himself and goes, my goodness, I told Jesus just a few moments ago that if I had to die with him, I would. I, I, you know, he stuck his neck out, right? He took his sword. And then he ran off. But then he realized, what am I doing running away? So then the Bible says, and we read it earlier in verse 54, Peter, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, we, we know that this following at a distance is a spatial thing, right? It's a physical, spatial thing. He was following at a physical distance. But how many think that, you know, Mark is using that on purpose to give us something even more profound than that? That Jesus, sorry, that Peter is actually following Jesus from an emotional distance. That he's actually following Jesus from a spiritual distance. He's not on the same page as Jesus, is what I'm getting at. While Jesus is in control of the situation, Peter is out of control. He thinks he's in control. He thinks he's going to do the right thing. Jesus has now had his mind set. He knows He's going to drink of this cup. He knows he's going to suffer. But Peter, he's unprepared for what is about to happen. And we see what happens. In chapter 14, verse 66, Peter's below in the courtyard. One of the serving girls of the high priest comes by. When she saw Peter warming himself, how many know when you're by the fire and you're warming yourself, what's happening? The fire is illuminating who you are. So she looks and sees Peter there warming himself, and she says, You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. Now, I think this is fascinating. The next expression out of Peter's mouth, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went into the entryway. Think about it. A servant girl has now got Peter rattled. Isn't that amazing? Do you know what happens when you and I are in the wrong? We're cowards. And when we're in the right, we're courageous. Jesus is in the right, he's courageous. Peter now is in the wrong, he's denying Jesus. All of a sudden he's shrinking back. He's protecting whom? Himself. He's now afraid. You know, fear makes us do terrible things, isn't it true? When we become afraid, we make bad decisions. Fear is not faith, folks. The Bible says perfect love does what? Cast out fear. Peter's not experiencing perfect love right now. He's experiencing fear. He's responding out of fear. A little serving girl is threatening him, and he denies that he knows Jesus. So much so that he leaves the fire because he knows he's being seen, so he goes to the entryway. But unfortunately for Peter, the servant girl sees him there. And she says to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. You know, get rid of that girl, right? You know. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, Surely you're one of them. You are a Galilean. Because in his denial, how many know he has an accent? You know, how many know that if you're listening to somebody from England, immediately go, you're not from Canada. You can tell why. They're speaking English. But they have a distinct way of speaking. And that was true of the Galileans. And so they said, hey, you're a Galilean. You're probably one of them. You're from that region where Jesus has been doing all his work. You must be a follower of his. And the Bible says he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the crow 
The rooster crowed the second time, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crowed twice, he'll disown me three times, and he broke down and wept. Now Mark leaves something out, and I love what Luke does. Luke brings it in. And what is it? While they were busy beating Jesus and leading him out of the courtyard, Peter and Jesus have a moment. It says, and Jesus looked at Peter. While Peter is cursing and saying, I don't know this man, eye contact with Jesus. How many know that's not a good moment? That was not a good moment for Peter. So it says, and then he remembered. I'll tell you why he remembered. When, when he looked into the eyes of Jesus, he realized everything you just told me about myself just happened. You warned me this was going to happen, but I told you it wouldn't happen. Why did Peter fail? Let me quote Ken Hughes. He says, no disciple speaks as often as Peter in the gospel. Isn't that true? I know that's true. He's the main spokesperson. No disciple was reproved like Peter was. You know, Peter said a lot, and Jesus had to rebuke him a few times. He's the only disciple who thought he could reprove Jesus. Now, he was straightening Jesus out sometimes. Isn't that true? Only Peter was doing that. You know, he was impulsive. He had strength. He had the will. Whatever the cost, Peter would follow Jesus. Who was Peter trusting? Who was Peter trusting? Himself. And can I tell you, every time you trust yourself, you'll fail. That's the problem. That's how failure comes. Jesus, on the other hand, knew that even perfect humanity, apart from God the Father, cannot succeed. Therefore, he lived in profound dependence on the Father. I would say, think about what John says. Jesus says, I only say the things the Father tells me to say. I only do the things the Father tells me to do. Jesus lived in absolute surrender and dependency on the Father. You see, Jesus, in his humanity, is showing us how human beings in a right relationship with God need to live. We need to stop doing our own thing. We need to do this thing. We need to say, Lord, it's not about what I want, it's about what you want. It's not about what I want to say, it's about what you want me to say. It's not about what I want to do, it's about what you want me to do. And by the way, that sounds very restrictive, doesn't it? Some of you are going, I already feel the weight of this thing. Let me tell you what happens. The moment we start walking like this, we're walking in the Spirit. And there was such a freedom in the Spirit, it's, un- it's, it's, it's unimaginable in our minds. I want you to think about when David, you know, came before Goliath. How did David come? Did he take on Saul's armor? No. David came based on who David was as discipled and trained by God. He knew how to use his claim. And he came in the name of the Lord using how God had developed him. And I tell you, the most natural thing in the world is to submit to God. Because God has designed you and I. We shouldn't all be copycats and doing all the same thing. No, we should be moving in the way that God designed us. Under submission to Him. In absolute freedom. And there is such a joy in that. There is such a peace in that. There is such hope in that. There is such freedom in that. That's the true life of freedom. And a lot of Christians have never discovered it. Because we are trusting ourselves rather than God. That's the, that's the problem. So let me close. 
How do we stand in moments of betrayal, in moments of injustice, in moments of rejection? Well, we have to do what Jesus did. We have to look at Jesus as self-surrender in the garden. His prayer life. You know, if you think that you're going to face these great challenges and live a prayerless life, you're going to falter. Because, you know, it's not about learning how to pray because that's a religious activity and duty. Let me explain something to you. Prayer should be the most natural thing in our lives because we recognize that I cannot live this life apart from God. And I live in moment-by-moment dependency on God. It's very powerful. Lord, I don't know what to do here. Lord, give me wisdom in what to say here. You know, if we would just do a little thinking and begin to dialogue with God moment by moment, it's amazing how our lives would begin to change. You see what I'm doing to us? I'm showing you that prayer isn't just spending 15, 20, 30 minutes in the morning. I'm telling you, prayer should be the air you breathe. You should be in constant communion with the Father, living in absolute self-surrender to Him so that you can handle whatever's coming before you. Not in your strength, but in His strength. I'm going to have it stand tonight as we close. And I want to ask the question, and I, and I did this earlier today, and there was a tremendous response in the life of our church family. You know, some of you today, think about it. How many here you can say, I've experienced betrayal, injustice, and rejection in my life? Raise your hand. You've experienced that. Every hand should be up. Really think about it. If you've never experienced these things, I feel bad for you because you will. To tell you. How many here you can say, you know, Pastor, I really think that, you know, I can start thinking about it now. How have I handled those experiences? Have I handled it the way Jesus would? Or have I handled it the way Peter did? Am I angry? Am I hurt? Have I retaliated? Was there hatred in my heart for this other person? And I want to see them destroyed, you know, blow them out of the water, Lord, break their teeth, you know, like that prayer, the precatory prayer. Is that how you feel? But I think it's a bit feel something, but then we've got to get past that feeling. We've got to get past that emotion in our life and say, Lord, I need to forgive this person. Get to it. Some of you, you know, you're not, you're not living. July the 10th, 2016. You're somewhere back there. You have been defined by past scarring, past hurt in your life. And you know it's true. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I'm not here to shame you, I'm not here to embarrass you. My prayer for you is that you'll leave this place free tonight. And that's you tonight. You say, no, Pastor, I realize something. I'm not living the way you're talking. I'm allowing what's happened to me to define who I am. That's you. Don't raise your hand. Real quick. Come on now. Be honest. If you're not going to be honest, you can't be free. I can't believe two or three people. Listen, this morning services, people everywhere responding. I'm going to say, you know, I really handle things the way Jesus did, or do I handle things more like Peter does? Come on. How many say, honestly, I get ticked. I get mad. I get frustrated. I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. Raise your hand right now. Come on, honestly, that's the way it is. Oh, now we're getting it. See, I did that a little bit. I did that. More people responded. I know. Because